Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Faith and Justice Network, where we are seeking faith and learning justice, because we believe the two belong together, that they lie at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. For the month of October, our theme is The Long Journey, and we're trying to understand who we have been, who we are today, and who we might become tomorrow not only as individuals, but as members together of a variety of different communities. So, Peter, um, how are you doing today? Yeah, um, it's been one of those times again, I think, where, uh, and part of it is reading this book, um, White Evangelical Racism by Anthea Butler, thinking and then rethinking and having second thoughts about you know, is this the right book for this part of the curriculum? And then mm-hmm. getting into some of the content and realizing, I think it really is, uh, but it's hard. It's hard to make these connections, um, both like cognitively, but also at the heart level, trying to make these connections. It's really, um, it's hard. So I, you know, the thing that I was thinking about um, this morning is that what many white Christians don't realize when we have these conversations is that the same kind of exasperation that so many white progressives feel at uh, the conspiracy theorists, at the Fox News listening folks, is the same kind of exhaustion or uh, exasperation that people of color feel oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in white progressive spaces. And I think there is a sense of exhaustion that comes over, um, over many of the people in a community like ours when we have these conversations uh, from different vantage points. So I'm feeling that. I'm feeling sort of the weight of that. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure like you being in charge of the program and there being white progressives and, you know, various people of color, that's, that's a lot to hold and create a space for these kinds of conversations. So thanks for sharing that, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. How are you doing? Yeah. I just told my husband, I'm like, oh man, podcasting is just really great for depressed people because I am just wearing clothes I was wearing yesterday and I, my eyes look very tired, but I'm able to, um, you know, in the comfort of my own home, show up and chat with you, which is really great. And one of the things that I was thinking about with while I'm reading this book, White Evangelical Racism, is one, you know, being a part of this program is like giving me some deadlines, right? Like Dr. Anthea Butler is talking on Saturday, so I want to read the book. I want to be in conversation. And so I'm just really grateful. Sometimes we need deadlines in our life, especially when life is chaotic and all over the map. And so I just want to say thank you for picking this out. It's funny that you're coming into this space being like, I'm not sure this was a good choice for this part of the program. Um, and whereas I'm just like, oh, I have a sense of like, I've lived some of this. I'm in constant conflict and communication with my white evangelical family and community about this. Do I really need to read another book about this? And I was really shocked by how much the ending, the conclusion really resonated with me. And, um, actually made me cry which was really I was not expecting that um but it was just this deep sense of sorrow um and it it was very multifaceted but um 
Yeah, it's funny because I was just looking through an old book that I'm rereading right now, um, Randy Woodley's book, and I had stuck this little note card in it. I just found it. And the note card just said, grieve so that eventually you can have other feelings. And I was like, that's so interesting. Like, why did I write that several years ago and put that in Randy Woodley's book about Shalom? I mean, it's like, that's what I was feeling at the end of white evangelical racism is just deep, I would say familial grief. Like it's grief for my family, grief for my community. And um, anyways, I'm not sure that's like the most helpful thing for you to hear in a, in a state of exhaustion. So I just want to also honor that, that it might also be exhausting for people to hear about um, white evangelicals grieving. Um, so I just want to make space for all those emotions. And Not at all. Not at all. I mean, here, so here's a thought I had also is uh, as I was thinking about the content for this particular unit is, I think Austin Channing Brown said it best um, when she opens um, her book with uh, those famous that famous line, white people are exhausting. Uh, but you know what? I don't think she goes far enough. I think she would, like, you know, if she were sitting here in conversation with us. But in that line, I don't think she goes far enough because, you, you know, what else is exhausting is um, uh, white institutions are exhausting. White histories are exhausting. Um, white churches are exhausting. White ministries and, and uh, organizations are exhausting. And it's exhausting because it's not just white supremacy that's like glaring in your face, but it is white normativity, which is harder to detect. It's all around us. It's inside of me. Um, and so that's, uh, that's something that we experience on a regular basis. But at the same time, I was, I, I'm also struck by the, by the fact that I, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm having this conversation with a white person and I don't find you exhausting. Like there's something about our friendship and our, the work that we've done together, the conversations we've had where there is trust and a sense of uh, mutual respect and solidarity. And I, and I think part of the, the question we have to explore is why, why are there pockets of, um, of friendships, relationships, conversations where it's not that way? And how can we experience more of that? And so, yeah, just makes me really grateful, even as I, I puzzle over these uh, weird experiences of disjunction. Yeah, um, I just hope that you continue, you know, as you want to, to feel free to share some of your experiences within like institutions. I don't know, maybe that's not something you're free to share, but I think that's really important to keep in mind, even as we're a part of this program. And I'm just so happy um, that you are one of the people in charge of it. And I'm so glad, I'm just really glad of the people you choose, um, the books you're choosing. I don't know. I just, I just want to reiterate, I'm sorry, this is turning into like a little mutual appreciation society, but that's, (laughs) that's how I feel today. And I wondered if, uh, one thing that really did stick out to me with reading white evangelical racism. And as I'm kind of prepping to interview Randy Woodley is this idea of like white normativity. Um, There's a lot of different words, right, that people use. There's like this academic word that I can never pronounce right. Hegemony. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you know know what what I'm talking about? Yes. And I feel like I don't know if that word was in this book or if it was in an interview I heard with Dr. Randy Woodley, but that's something that I still think needs to be clarified for me a little bit, just this 
absolute drumbeat towards this like normative ideal that we can call whiteness. And that's something I'm still having such a hard time wrapping my mind around. And you know, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but right now what's really helping me a little bit is being involved in communities that are being led by neurodiverse people or people with mental illness. All these things um, really are gifts to help us continue to peel back these layers of what is this normativity we're going I'm actually really obsessed with I mean maybe I'm rushing ahead but I want to ask you you know some things you would recommend to people and things you're doing right now as a spiritual practice one of mine currently is following like fat liberation people and most of them don't come from like any sort of faith perspective but like fat liberationists are showing me like how our our society right upholds thinness as this ideal that is extremely, extremely damaging um, to people who are fat. And so stuff like that, I'm like, who knew? I'm reading this book called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. And I'm like, this is like my spiritual practice for the month is learning about like how damaging fat phobia is in our society. And so maybe that sounds weird and maybe that's a weird connection to make, but I just keep thinking about this. How do we continue to go about recognizing that, that push towards normativity and how do we interrupt that? That's just what I. Wow. <laughs> There's so much there that you just, oh, that's yeah. good stuff. That's really good stuff because I think there it's all connected. And the reason it's all connected is because. I mean, that, that, that fancy word, hegemony, right? It's all about power. And oftentimes power is, power wields power by being able to navigate through spaces where there are unchecked, unquestioned assumptions. Um, and so the structures of power are all around us, but so long as people are not questioning, are not aware of um, the power structures um, through which we organize our lives, it continues to operate and prosper. And so I think you're naming things that are important to name. And, and I think this is what Anthea Butler does so well for us is it tells us, for many of us, a history that we're familiar with. And it provides a new lens for looking at the things that we've lived through. Yeah, I think I have a question about that. Um, when you were reading this book, like, because some of it is like obviously history from like the 1950s and Billy Graham. And I loved the emphasis on Billy Graham because... Billy Graham does not get critiqued enough, you know, in my circles, at least. Um, but like the more recent history from 2000 on, like as you were reading, did you find yourself in that story? Were you aware of all the people and players she was talking about? I, I was just curious about that for you. Yes. Um, yes, very much so. And I want to hear about your experience, like the parts that resonated for you and the parts that maybe you might have said, oh, I actually lived through some of that. So I found I found myself in in much of this story because I grew up in Southern California and I grew up in a Korean American church that was very much steeped in white normativity and so we went to um, our youth group went to Arrowhead Springs um, the conference center that she mentions in the book early on um, uh, you know a site for evangelical camps and conferences we went to um, all of the the crusades and the gatherings, the Harvest Crusade, um, the, the Billy Graham Crusades. And so that was very much part of our, and I think this also connects to the, the concept or the theme of, long, of a long journey in the sense that uh, there are parts of my spiritual journey that feels like, it just feels like a long time ago. It feels like a different lifetime. Mm. 
Um, I think about the fact that I never, so uh, this is maybe a, a badge of honor that, that I wear, that I never got into focus on the family, but I was surrounded <sighs> by folks um, inundated uh, with the message of uh, focus on the family. And so, I mean, this is what I grew up with. This is what was on the radio when I got into the car. Um, this is what was on TV, Channel 40 in Southern California was uh, TBN, the, the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And so, yes, very much so. This was my life. And it feels like a long time ago. It feels like a different chapter. But I also have to recognize that these influences are with me today. And, uh, and how can mm. I be aware of that is a, is a question that I, I think I need to be asking myself on a regular basis. Yeah, I think, I think that's really, I mean, that's so insightful. And just those things that pop out to you about your own life. I sort of struggled with having two lenses as I was reading this book, because some of it is a lot of like, you know, history and names that I have been investigating myself, you know, current names that still continue to make the headlines like Franklin Graham and Robert Jeffries, you know, all these, all these names. But um, I think taking a step back to look at the long journey and looking at my own life, right, being raised in in white evangelicalism, there, there can just be a lot of shame that comes up for me. Like I didn't know it was this big orchestrated, you know, power hungry thing happening. I was very much caught up in it. And so for me, a lot of that came up when talking about, you know, post 9-11 and the increase in Islamophobia and evangelicals sort of using Islamophobia to target missions, you know, towards the 1040 window. And, you know, that was just everything I was invested in, which is just really hard to deal with sometimes. And, and, Okay, this will probably go back again to some of these like spiritual practices. I I did have an experience a few weeks ago where I was thinking about my journals. So like the journals I wrote during when I was going to Bible college, when I wanted to be a missionary. And I've gone back and reread some of those and it's like totally cringeworthy. But what's fascinating is I'm not talking about Dr. Dobson, right? I'm not talking about the 1040 window. Instead, I'm like, it's this deep evangelical Christianese about just wanting to try harder and do better for God so God would love me. And it's really interesting to have like the extremely personal overlay this history, right, of white American evangelicalism and the racist policies and theologies that upheld it. Um, and one thing for me personally, and you please give me some feedback on this, Peter, if this is like really annoying or really frustrating. One thing I just was thinking about last week is um, God loves me today just as much as God loved 20-year-old Danielle writing in her journal back then. Like God sees me, loves me, and accepts me um, just as much. And that's been like a spiritual practice I've just been trying to sit in a little bit. It's like God's love for me has not changed. Like that connects me to that 20-year-old. That connects me to who I was, what I was trying to accomplish, how I viewed the world. Um, because I don't, I don't want to divorce myself from her completely. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like we have to reckon with the totality of who we are and the communities that formed us and shaped us. Like so many people have asked me, like, why do you still call yourself a Christian? Before it was like, why do you call yourself an evangelical? It's like, you don't just get to throw out your entire background because 
you don't like some things about it or you don't like a lot about it for my case, you know, like it's who I am and I have to reckon with that. Um, and the truth is, you know, God really loved me and even, you know, liked me as a human being <laughs> made in their image. I don't know. It's just something I, I've been thinking about. And I just wonder if other people reading this book or listening, um, you know, if they're like me and coming from white evangelicalism, like we have a lot of spiritual work to do, I think, if we want to continue being people of faith, just as we unpack and detangle from all this. I'm sorry, that was a long, that was a lot. And that was a long answer. I, I love it because the it's not a common response or it's not a common thought that many of us have towards our younger selves. Uh, I think what's more common is embarrassment or some sense of, uh, oh, you know, that was me when I was younger and less mature, but now I'm, I'm past that. And, um, and I think that posture that you're talking about, it's hard, but trying to, to see the ways in which God was present in your life even back then uh, because the fact of the matter is that, you know, when you look back 20 years from now, right, God willing, that, you know, that you're going to be able to see things in yourself now um, that may, might make you cringe or might make you uh, think twice. And, and so, and, and this is what it means to have humility about who we are today is, um, I think, having the grace to be able to embrace or to to recognize who we were. Because you can't disown yourself, right? Like, like you don't want to, and you can't. And so you might as well own up to who you were, who you are, the whole of it. Um, and I think that the thing that for people of faith is so, uh, so helpful, now it can be a, a route towards escapism, but the thing that's helpful is that there is a higher being, that there is... That, that there is a God who holds the world together, as hard as that may be to believe at times. And that meaning is derived there and not in our ability to make sense of it and to, and to um, have all the right positions at all times, which is impossible. I, I mean, it's so true. And I will say, you know, this is like a individual spiritual practice I'm engaging in, not like this is my posture to all evangelicals, right? Because I think there's a difference when talking about systems, institutions, organizations, and then also having to deal with some of this inward work. If we're looking back at the long journey, if we're looking back, you know, in our lives. So I think that's something I just continue to try and say is like, yeah, I, I want to be a person who, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a part of like, the normativity I grew up in is that your your beliefs should never change. They should always stay the same. And that was like a really important thing in my in my growing up, which is incredibly ironic since evangelicalism is such a new <laughs> right way of experiencing Christianity historically. Um, and so I've just, yeah, having to relearn like changing your mind on theology when when presented with information specifically about how your theology may have harmed people is like a really good thing and that sounds stupid to say out loud but that is not what I was told growing up and so having compassion on my younger self and being like I'm glad I've changed in some ways and I think you're right I hope in 20 years I I look back and say oh wow I'm so glad I changed in in these really important ways 
that, but that is how, I mean, that's what's hegemonic about our experience of Christianity so often is that there are authority figures who want to say to us, hey, we, we have the truth, we, and we understand it in ways that no one else does, no one else in our world currently and no one else in our history, right? And so we have arrived at something that, that no one else has, and this is unchanging truth. And, um, and we want to give it to you, and we want you to live your life, organize your life around this. And I think this is, the, the, this is really the sad and painful thing, is that there are so many rank-and-file evangelicals or Christians who live in these hegemonic systems who are sincere in their beliefs, but they're, um, but they're stuck or trapped in systems that, aren't, that don't have the capacity to self-critique and to learn and to, and to um, correct itself along the way. Um, so this is, I mean, this is where it feels like we're spinning our wheels a lot of times because it feels like, oh, like what I get to do is admit I don't know anything. And it, that gets tiresome too. It does. And yet I still, it's funny because I still really resonate when other people say that out loud. And so like Dr. Butler's book, there's a part near the end where, you know, she says like, American evangelicals like have lost the ability to be viewed as moral, like as a moral force in any way, shape or form, basically. And I was like, yes, like, you know, looking back at my old journals when I was 20, I was just starting to figure that out. And the loneliness, you know, this is probably a very common experience. People have had the loneliness of growing up in this system and being like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. I'm trying to take Jesus literally and now you're saying i'm a socialist and that i'm a liberal and that you know that i'm no longer a good evangelical when i'm just trying to make these moral and ethical decisions based on my neighbors and not my own personal rights so it was just like i don't know i'm still at that stage where i'm like oh it's just like a sense of relief just to see this book spell it out really clearly at the at the end there especially about like yeah they've they've lost the moral authority in my eyes and it's okay to say that um i don't know it was really it was really helpful for me yeah and sometimes it takes stepping back or having someone else who has a more distant um, perspective on things one of the things that's been really helpful for me is i've been trying to find or like just around town here I've been trying to find uh, stairs to climb that lead to heights that give me a better view of the city because I, I happen to live in a really beautiful city. And for so long, especially up until the pandemic, the, the primary way that I traversed the city was on foot or um, on public transit. And one of the things I've noticed driving around this, driving around the city that, uh, in the past year or so is like there, and I always knew this, but I'm experiencing this again. There are these amazing vistas that this that the city springs on you when you least expect it. Um, and there are these hills, and especially in San Francisco, there are um, these parks on hilltops that give you uh, amazing panoramic views of the city, east, north, west. Um, and that's been really helpful for me. And I find myself, I find myself yearning for those um, those views because I feel like I just need to to um, to find some way to get above ground to to see mm. the bigger picture. And I think this that's my sense of this book as well. And some of the other readings for this chapter is: Can we put ourselves into a position and into a posture? where we can see more than we are allowed to see uh, by the structures, the daily structures that organize our lives. 
I don't know how to follow that. That was like a beautiful, like historian, theologian, <laughs> spiritual practice that you just gave us. And I love it. And it made me think like, wow, I haven't, I, I also live in a beautiful place, but I never uh, take the time to go uh, and find a higher vista. So that was, that's like something I want to now do. I will say another thing I've been doing is I'm just so tired from uh, trying to be a, like a freelance Christian writer, you know, in the era of Trump and all that, just I'm tired. Uh, I've reached a limit with uh, words. And so I've been doing a lot of like art journaling and just like letting some really weird art stuff come out. And I've been amazed at the the meaning making and connection uh, my brain like kind of wants to make without me even being that aware of it, if that makes sense. Um, it's been really helpful to just try a new way. I wanted to say something really quick because maybe talking about spiritual practices can trigger people, right? If you grew up being told like you have to read the Bible and journal every day and that's how you connect to God. I, I just want to say um, we need a more expansive view of what spiritual practices are. And I'd love to hear, you know, how you would define that. But I just want to give a quick example. I knew going into this past year that I wanted to connect with art as a way of connecting with God because I'm such a word person. So I bought some books on art because I really love like impressionists and all this stuff. And I tried to like do Lectio Divina, but it's called like Image Divina, you know, where you like meditate. And I hated it. I hated it so much. And all I could think about in all those art books, it's like, it's only white European males in these books. And I'm not connecting to their art. I'm not connecting to God. And um, I, so I just want to say like, <laughs> we, we can be creative and keep trying. And now I've just experienced like just cutting up magazines and doing weird drawings and, and playing with color and all that has been much more meaningful for me than staring at a book of like impressionist paintings, which I thought would be a good way to connect with God, but it didn't do that. And so it's okay to keep trying and keep the, like learning and just be on the lookout for what are these things that are nourishing to us. And I'm just at a phase of my life where I'm like, the weirder, the better, man. Spiritual practices can be can be very odd and outside the norm. And I think we're getting to this point where we're like, oh yeah, that's good. Because maybe that's a part of the point of it, right? Is to help us break free of these normative ideals all around us. Yeah, I, I think that that is just so helpful to expand the notion of spiritual practices in that way. Uh, and I think you do, I mean, you do it in a way that is so um, just organic and natural. Um, and that's really helpful. Um, because I think for me, uh, and this is part of my evangelical upbringing, is I tend to think kind of about programmatic things, right? Like I'm setting aside time now to engage my spiritual self. And, um, and I think I'm really helped by uh, your description of just kind of moving through the day and then finding ways to, to, um, to receive nourishment along the way. That's a really, really good reframing. Thank you for that. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you have any other things to say? Like what, what would you say is a spiritual practice then? Cause I'm saying it's something that helps connect us to God. And again, that might even be triggering to people. And I, and I want to be aware of that too. Yeah. I think, um, so much of our life, uh, so much of my life I spend, uh, just engrossed in what's right in front of me. 
And I think because of that, my sense of reality that uh, that I walk around with is, oh, this is this is the reality that I live in, right? Like the physical experiences that I'm going through. And what is so helpful about, um, I think as, as triggering as the word might be, what is really helpful about the idea of engaging in spiritual practices is uh, being able to be attentive to a greater reality or a deeper reality, or mm-hmm. there's something more mm-hmm. happening right now in this moment. And it's mm-hmm. not just it's not just the conversation we're having, or it's not just, you know, the thing that's really frustrating me about, you know, this, this part of my life. Or, but it, there's a deeper reality. And, and how can I see um, beyond like the, the immediate physical reality? And I think it's just whatever helps. So that's maybe, I hadn't really thought about this before, before you asked me, but now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's whatever really, really helps me to see beyond my immediate physical experience of life and that's spiritual but oftentimes it's the physical things that can um, be gateways or guides into that as well that's such a great definition and you came up with that on the fly that's amazing i love it so we also wanted to talk about the psalms a little bit uh because we have this walter brueggemann reading that uh really helpfully uh, provides an introduction to how we should think about and engage the Psalms. And then one, one outline that he gives is this, um, this three-part movement from orientation to disorientation to a new orientation. Um, and I think just the Psalms have been coming a lot in lots of conversations in different cohorts and, and just, um, just, yeah, I think people who are moving through this curriculum, and I'm. Uh, I just want to uh, spend a little bit of time with you thinking about how are how are the Psalms reflective of the kinds of things we're trying to um, to recognize in ourselves and in the world around us. Um, so maybe with that, oh, and the other thing that um, I think has been helpful is along with uh, Brueggemann's outline is this idea of mountaintops, valleys, and and plains. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wondered if you have. Um, any reflections on how um, you have moved through various phases in your life that you might characterize as a mountaintop experience or as a time in um, the valley or the valleys and then as a time on the plains of life or the flatlands of life and maybe even if there are uh, particular psalms that come to mind or themes from the Psalter that have helped you to um, to interpret or to reflect on those experiences. Yeah, well, I'm just going to be really honest and say that I don't engage with the Psalms a ton. The church I attend, you know, by attend, I mean go online once or twice a month, um, <laughs> is not liturgical. And um, for me, the Psalms are very, like in my childhood, we're just, we only focus on the positive ones. Um, some of them gave me some comfort as a kid, as an anxious kid, but mostly I didn't really resonate with them. And so I do love Walter Brueggemann and other people's invitation to see them just as like a full expression of humanity. It's just humans being humans and um, being able to be honest with God, where before I didn't really view them very honest, right? But that's just because of the ones 
I uh, the ones that were like made into you know praise songs. <laughs> so there's that. Um, th- now this is gonna be really weird, Peter, because I don't really want to talk about myself in the Psalms, but I want to talk about um, a movie I just saw in the theater, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is based off the documentary from 2000 called The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Now, Tammy Faye Baker makes a little appearance in white evangelical racism because her and her husband, Jim Baker, were a part of, you know, kind of outsiders in the moral majority, but they had, you know, PTL, Praise the Lord, their television station, all that stuff. So in the movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Jessica Chastain plays Tammy Faye Baker throughout her life, and they, uh, you know, their uh, television station, their evangelicalism, they built a theme park, and then it all crashed, right, in this big scandal. And the very end of both the movie and the documentary it's based off of has Tammy Faye quoting Psalm 91, like at the very crescendo of the film. And it's just a fascinating look. I was like, this is like the most scripture I've seen in a movie, like that isn't made by a Christian (laughs) producer, you know, I think I've ever seen. And it was such an interesting look at how complicated people identify with the Psalms. Cause I would say Tammy Faye Baker is a really complicated person. And that's why it's, it, she makes a great movie because you empathize with her and you also feel pity for her. You feel uh, a bit of revulsion towards the whole prosperity gospel stuff. And yet when she died, uh, she died of cancer in 2007. You know, she was still a Christian, even through all the ups and downs of her life. And the film just just made this big point about Psalm 91. And Psalm 91, you know, has these beautiful things about God, right? Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And just even these these images of resting underneath, you know, the wings of God. It was just really, really powerful and really, really complex. And so it just reminded me, the Psalms are not simple. Humans are not simple. Christians in America are not simple. And just to kind of hold how we interact with scripture, um, just making space for all of that. Does this make sense? It was just a very interesting moment with me and Psalm 91 and Tammy Faye. And and uh, I love how you are recognizing the the full humanity of a person that we often see in caricature form, um, and the Psalter does that for us. The Psalter reminds us that all of life um, is lived under uh, the watchful um, gaze of God. That God is that God mm-hmm. is watching over and holding together all the various disparate uh, experiences. Um, of all the people in the world and throughout history, and this is this is the messy songbook that we have of God's people, and um, and I think that's a really comforting thing to to recognize. Mm. There's a lot of things in the Psalter that um, ought to be a source of revulsion for us too, right? Um, or at the very least, ought to make us think and reflect and question and critique. Mm-hmm. And I know that. So every time I talk about Psalm one, especially the the, the particular sort of approach I have to it. It happens without fail. There's always somebody, uh, and I really want to um, also make space for this kind of response that has reverence for and a lot of appreciation for Psalm 1 because their experience of it was very different from mine, whereas mine was more problematic. Theirs was, it was a source of comfort and it provided a framing for how they might relate to God. 
And I guess my my gentle invitation to that response would be, that's great. And I think I'm all for obedience. Like, my, my goodness, I, I, I'm a parent of three young boys. I believe in obedience, right? I think obedience is really important for us as human beings to learn and to and to embrace. And at the same time, it's the it's not the only way. There's so much. There are so many other ways to to relate to God, to to think about Christian theology. And so, um, can we have the same kind? Of, can we have the same kind of critical lens that we have towards other parts of this altar that talk about bashing the heads of infants against uh, rocks? Right. That's in the altar too. And I think it's easy for us to be to take a critical lens on a passage like that. Well, can we apply that same critical lens to uh, Psalm one and um, and ask ourselves, critique the tendency to make that all of Christian spirituality, and say maybe there are times where obedience is not the best thing to think about or to work towards in one's relationship with God. Like yes, that's maybe a blasphemy, kind of a blasphemous thought but maybe that could be a, a pathway to life as well. That's so true. And I, I think in this discussion we're having, I think we're also sort of saying that it's helpful to have other people help you look at things from other perspectives and whatever your like natural predisposition is towards, like it's helpful to have some, I don't know if it's a course corrective, but just another way of looking at it. So if like someone was really into Psalm 1, you know, it's like maybe their spiritual practice should be meditating on Psalm 88, right? I remember when I was in a really dark place, someone I think on Twitter was like, uh, you should read Psalm 88. It's like the only Psalm, I believe, with not a single redemptive line in it. And it is like the Psalm of a very depressed person. And it doesn't end with a neat bow. There is no happiness. There is no, but God, I know you'll come and save you, which is how most lament Psalms actually do end up. And this one is it. And oh my gosh, the comfort I found in Psalm 88. And I still do to this day when I'm in a really dark place. It's like, yeah, I need a Psalm that ends with darkness is my only friend, you know? (laughs) Yes. So maybe people who are really into Psalm 1 just need to spend some time Psalm 88 and maybe vice versa. I don't know. That's a little harder advice to give. Well, it's really important because all of the other lament psalms in the Psalter end with some kind of vow to praise, and Psalm 88 is the only mm-hmm. one that doesn't. And I think that is God's gift to us, and God saying, there are times in your life when you will cry out to me where you don't have to end in some kind of note of optimism or hope. It's, it, you're right, it is a gift, yeah. We're not, we, you know, we don't have to live there all the time, but there are seasons of life where, where we are there and it's okay to be there. Um, yeah. What about you, Peter? Did you, did you want to share any like times in your life that you've kind of experienced the flow of the Psalms? Yeah. There have been so many times in my life where I, I would just say where I could not stomach any uh, portion of scripture except the Psalms. So I would try to read, mm. you know, um, the Gospels are, are a close second, but the Psalms, I think, are um, by far the portions of Scripture that I turn to the most often. Um, mm. So I would say, yeah, there are there have been many seasons of life where I, I like it's the only um, pages of Scripture I can turn to. So there are, yeah, I think there are just uh, many Psalms. Psalm 73 comes to mind. Uh, Psalm 73 is one of my favorites uh, because it, it's a, a direct confrontation or critique of Psalm 1. 
And so I think when you read it in that way, um, when you read it as like, whoever wrote that song was really upset about Psalm 1. And so when you read oh it in that gosh. lens, yeah, it's really, it's really helpful to, to, to see um, those different approaches or lenses or perspectives. Yeah. And it, I don't know, like, even when you're saying that, that just makes me feel so excited. Like, this is the kind of, like, scriptures we get to engage with. This is the kind of God, you know, I want to be in relationship is, is one that is very much okay with <laughs> critique and messiness. And I don't know, I just find that so much more exciting and expansive than, um, you know, the course I took on Psalms in my Bible college, which didn't talk about any of this stuff. So mm, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of openness and permission and invitation, right? Throughout the Psalter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, what about a recommendation? We wanted to sort of close out our conversation with a recommendation. Um, this was your idea. A recommendation is something that we've been reading or watching or listening to. Um, you want to yeah, go I've, first? I've shared plenty. I've shared plenty in the space of this time already, and I'm really sorry. But that's a part of my personality. It's like when I'm reading, watching, you know, I'm just like super into. So go watch The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And read what, I mean, read tons of books, but uh, what we don't talk about when we talk about fat by Aubrey Gordon. She's also the co-host of this amazing podcast called Maintenance Phase, which does uh, basically is all about the diet and wellness industry. So you can learn a lot about fat phobia there. And she's an amazing podcaster. So those are You're so good at this. You've been you, sprinkling in your answers throughout our conversation. I know. That's I'm like, good. Uh -oh. I just, <laughs> I'm just so with my subtle. kids all the time. I'm like... <laughs> Now I can talk to people about yeah. what I've been <laughs> reading. Yeah. Okay, what about you, Peter? Well, one thing that came to mind when I saw this question from you was um, uh, I've been reading Dave Chang's um, memoir, uh, you know, The Chef, um, oh. and the star of many Netflix um, food shows. He's one of my favorite uh, persons to to listen carefully to because there's so much, um, there's so much questioning and pushing back against hegemonic structures um, in, mm -hmm. in, the, in his words and in the ways that he approaches food and cooking. And so his memoir, I think it's called Eat a Peach or something like that. But it's just like, it's one of those books. Okay. There are very few books that make me um, laugh and cry, you know, like minutes apart. Um, but it, this is one of those books. I think the only other book that really had that elicited that kind of response in me was Russell Jung's book, At Home in Exile. And they both happen to be mm -hmm. two Asian males. And so there's something about just, you know, positionality and representation that, that matters in those ways. But I've been really enjoying um, Dave Chang. And I've missed not having, you know, a new Netflix show to watch um, featuring Dave. And so this has been uh, really good. Um, a good way to sort of... Uh, indirectly think about some of the a lot of the key themes of uh of the fellowship uh he addresses many of them i love that so much and i totally want to go look up his book now what what is like your favorite netflix show that he's done if people just want to kind of get a glimpse oh, yeah. into it because doesn't he do ugly delicious it's, it's his latest one yeah ugly delicious that's right mm -hmm. yeah I think that's what I watched and I was like, whoa, it is really good. And it's not just about food. It's about a lot of things. It's about anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, yes. racism. Oh, so many things. I think there, there are two seasons of Ugly Delicious, I think. I would say every episode is packed full of amazing theological insights. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, it's just been so great to talk to you. I wish we could have this conversation with everybody, but you know, January is coming. We will hopefully have a gathering in person to talk to everybody, but it's been, it's been great to read um, this book that you assigned to us all, Peter. <laughs> and just great to be thinking about all of these things. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's been fun. 